0: Welcome back to the Techspective podcast. Uh, I am excited this week to have my guest, uh, Andy Ellis. So, Mr. Ellis, uh, I, I don't think you really need an introduction, but you know, feel free to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Thanks, Tony. Although when you say Mr. Ellis, I try to look over my shoulder to see if my dad just walked into the room. So, <laughs> uh, I spent 21 years running security for Akamai Technologies, you know, left parted ways earlier this year. Uh, I am now an operating partner with YL Ventures, where I advise uh, a number of the companies in their portfolio. We're primarily focused on cybersecurity companies, seed round uh, coming out of Israel. You know, a lot of them are moving to the United States, so I can do a blended perspective on you know, building teams, product market fit, you know, building product. You know, had a message to the CSO, so I'm having a blast with that. I've been writing a book on leadership Knock on wood. This week, my uh, book proposal will go out to some publishers to see who's interested in picking that up.
0: Well, that's uh, that's exciting. Um, I, I I've, you can't see the the shelf to my left, but I've got my my books over here. Um, so, in a in a former life, uh, I've, I've <laughs> written a book or two. Uh, I I, so I wrote one of my own. I, you know, am co-author on uh, a couple, and then a contributing author on a, on a bunch of others. And so, all all told, my name is on the cover of like twelve books. Excellent, uh, thank you. But um, and 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 every once in a while, I still get the I, I get the bug again, where I'm like, maybe I should write a book. But I have to say, like the 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 math never really works out because I mean, sure. <laughs> because I'm I'm like, you know, the book is a is a labor of love kind of thing you know it's like it's investing six months a year of your life researching and writing and 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 in the end you know i end up making about as much money as i can make from writing a white paper in a weekend
1: yep (laughs) so no I i totally understand that you know for me the book it's a book on leadership and it actually started out not as a book on leadership it started as a book on decision making which anybody who's seen any of my keynotes over the last ten years probably knows—that's a, a topic that I've spent a lot of time uh, working on. But along the way, I realized that you know to make good decisions at organizational scale often really does come down to leadership. You know, it's not that they're they're one and the same, but they're so much tied together. And to teach people how to make better decisions, first you really do have to teach them how to be better leaders. That like bad leadership and bad decision-making seem to go hand in hand.
0: Okay. So not having your experience, I would agree with that premise. But the thought that comes to mind is, is that a, like a symbiotic two-way street? Like, it seems to me like you could just as easily say the opposite that, that, you know, you can't be a good leader without good decision-making, you know, but you also can't make good decisions without good leadership.
1: Yeah. So actually I don't know that that's true. Like, I think that, that when we talk about leadership, people often, there's two mistakes I see that get made. One is to say that leadership is about taking people on a journey often to somewhere they don't want to go. Um, you know, to me, that's like describing leaders as used car salesmen. Um, that doesn't sound like great leadership to me. I do recognize there is charisma. People, you know, Lenin, by that standard, was a fantastic leader. So was Stalin. I'm not necessarily sure that I want to hold them up as, uh, as, as great models. Um, There's another model that talks about leadership as about getting the most out of your people, right? To me, that's management. Like Mussolini was also really good at getting the most out of people, uh, but that's not leadership. To me, leadership doesn't require you to have a strategy and a vision. It doesn't require you to manage people well. Leadership is about developing the people that follow you, right? And they don't have to work for you. Like we know many leaders who just invest in developing the people within their community. uh, And when they need help, the people in the community show up for them. Like that's sort of the, the principle for it. Now, when you're a great leader, it makes it easier to be a good manager. It makes it easier to be a good visionary. So all of these things become easier once you're a good leader. But if you're not a good leader, like you can still go do these other things, but the side effects become so expensive and painful.
0: Right. Well, and I, I have to say, I've I've only been in the position a, a few times, uh, you know, over, over the, you know, say the last 20, 30 years. I mean, even going back to when I was in the Air Force. I mean, I, I have led people. Yep. But in general, I don't. I I I, I, I try to be self aware enough of my own limitations, and and I don't feel like I'm a I'm a tremendous leader. Like I'm really good at doing what I do, um, and. I have a hard time letting go and trusting other people to do. like, so if I give you something to do, like I end up micromanaging you cause I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. you can't do this possibly as, as well as I can. So I'm going to have to like watch and do it with you.
1: Yeah. I got, I got a couple chapters in my book for you on, on the power of delegation and accepting that, you know, other people will just do it differently. And you have to just make that trade off because as a, as a leader, you want to enable more work to get done. Which requires you don't do it yourself sometimes, which means you don't get it the way you want it. There,
0: there, there's actually a, a, a you could you could segue off and do a, a, a relationship book because that that actually kind of boils down to a you know you a, know a, a common issue in, in in marriage or at least in my marriage yeah. of you know. We, we're, the the thing is going to get done one way or the other. We don't necessarily agree on the on the how. And like if if you sat there and micromanage and be like, well, why are you doing it that way? I mean, you know, like yep. <laughs> why would well, you do that?
1: <laughs> so uh, along the way in writing this book, you know, I do realize that you know marriage, parenting, any relationship is about leadership, and there are lessons that do follow. You know, when you're a manager, if you're a parent, you know, there are going to be days that you're like goodness gracious, my kids listen better than this. And then you have this realization that you're treating your employees like children. And sometimes that's bad. I know I phrase it that way. It certainly sounds bad. But sometimes that gives you this aha moment that, you know, delegation, imagine if you asked your children to perform a task at the same skill level that you had, like you would immediately recognize as a parent how much of an abject failure you would be to try to ask your children to be as perfect as you are the first time they try something, then why do we expect the same thing out of our employees? If I hire somebody brand new, they've never done this job before. In a sense, I need to teach them the same way that I would teach my children. It's not denigrating them. Right. What it really is, is showing them that I'm invested in them growing in the same way that I'm invested in my children growing. Because I'm not invested in anything more than I am my children growing. So to me, it's a compliment. If I tell you, I want you to develop in that same way.
0: Yeah. Well, so interesting sort of parallel, but like one of the things we've noticed, my, my, my daughter, uh, dances, I mean, she's a teenager, but she, you know, dances like 20, 30 hours a week, you know, Mm -hmm. since she was like nine, I mean, like dance, dance pretty much dictates my entire like calendar.
1: Um, (laughs) Theater for me, I, I get it.
0: Um, but one of the things we, we we've noticed uh, over over the years is um, there are you know th- there 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 might be some some dancers who you know don't get attention, don't get the corrections, don't get and and at face value. If you don't know anything, you might think, oh well, they must they must just be better or whatever. They don't need the corrections, and it's like no, the teacher's just not invested in them. Yes, <laughs> the, the, you know, they basically. They, they they either don't see the potential in them or they just don't, they don't care. But, but, but yeah, like not, not having, not getting any feedback is actually not a good thing.
1: No, it's, it's really awful. And there's a a thing I see in management a lot. It's, you know, a sign of poor leadership. You know, How many companies have you been in where the only time people invested in performance management was either you were really senior and were trying to groom you for your next role Or you're failing in your current job. And if you're in the middle, like 90% of the people who are just doing the job well, nobody is telling you how to do it better and how to grow and how to become a better version of yourself. But so why would we do this? We're going to take our 5% of failures or 5% of amazing successes and only invest there rather than help the 90% that honestly get more out of a small amount of input than either of these two extremes got
0: well and and i would say that in a lot of in a lot of cases i think that uh, there's you know more of the attention is aimed at that lower extreme yeah you know, absolutely you, you've got the people who are excelling and you think oh i don't need to do anything with them they're doing great you know i don't need to, i don't need to tell them anything don't need to interact with them they're
1: just off on their own um, and but you, you at least will give them opportunities. That's the, right. that's the sort of the one thing that they get is we keep throwing more challenges at you because you seem to survive from them.
0: But this, you know, proverbial squeaky wheel gets the grease. So, you know, the, the, the one who's dropping the ball, the one who's holding things up, ends up getting all the attention and you end up with these people in the middle who are just like, all right, well, you know, what am I supposed to be doing here?
1: Right. And so my the lesson I would always give my managers when I was at Akamai, they said, look, for whenever you have a performance conversation, which you should be having at least quarterly, like that should be a regular conversation, is don't even talk about the current job. Talk about the next two jobs for this person. And you want to not focus on the very next one because that can become very contentious. Because the person's like, well, I'm ready for that job. And you're like, no, you, you really aren't. And you're going to have an argument. But if you talk about two jobs from now, there's no argument. right? If right. you're a, an architect and your next gig would be senior architect, the next one is principal. Let me talk about principal architect with you. Because you can clearly see that you're not ready for that yet. But now we can lay out a path to get there. That path will take you through senior. But it starts to, it takes away the immediacy of, like, are we fighting about a promotion right now? And really becomes a development conversation. And you get choices. You can say, well, maybe you could go this path. Maybe you go down that path. And it really does become a conversation centered in investing in the growth of your employee.
0: Okay. Well, I'll, I, I'm, uh, you know, I will look forward to uh, seeing this book. Um, uh, I, I will say, you know, you know, pretty much as long as I've been in cybersecurity, or actually really as long as I've been in cybersecurity, you were at Akamai. That yep. what, as far as I'm like they're inseparable. You were Akamai. <laughs> and um and 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 to your credit and to Akamai's credit, you know, whatever, um, you know, many of the people that I uh know and respect in the industry, um, either, you know, are there now or have gone through there, you know, like, you know, you, you managed to attract them to come to Akamai yep. uh, at, at some point. Um, and, you know, I think that's a testament to, uh, you know, what, what you built there.
1: Yeah, there were some, you know, lots of great folks. It's, uh, it's one of those things that's fascinating. I think If if you build a great team and I give so much more of the credit to my team, you know, I was the public face of it. So it's it's very flattering that, you know, say I was Aquaman, people came to work with me. They really came to work with this team of people. You know, my when I left, it was 95 people, a fantastic organization, which also happened to be 40% women, which is really unusual in our space, but was because we, we tried to hire people who could provide value and grow, not people who were just the ones who'd already succeeded. Um, there's starting to be uh, some good evidence that says, you know, past career success doesn't necessarily mean you'll be successful in the future. It's really more about a fit with the opportunities where you're going to be.
0: Well, and, and, and you know, I think to actually kind of bring it back to the, the book and leadership and stuff, I think sometimes we both as the individual worker and as the manager or the leader, um, you know, once you've made a decision to hire someone, you almost feel like, tethered to that path. You know yes. like oh I hire them to do this thing so guess are you know, we're, we're stuck with this now. And 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 I think that there's a lot of uh value for both the manager and the and the individual to be a little more open, a little more flexible about and 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 a, a little more self-aware to recognize look okay you've been doing this now 3 months, 6 months, 9 months it's not really vibing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 it doesn't have to be like a so Hey, uh, you know, here's your here's your two weeks. Uh, have a nice life. It can be a hey. Let's look at well, what are your strengths? You know, let, let you know what have we learned over the last nine months uh, working
1: together, and and maybe we can redirect you. Yep, yeah. Can you find a better job for the person, a better fit? Is it about style? It's one of the reasons why I was always reluctant to hire senior people. Like we did occasionally, you know, some of them. But more often, when someone in our organization would say, look, we need you to assign somebody senior to do this new project, I'd rather find someone in the organization who wants to do that work and is ready to do that work or almost ready, promote them into that role, and then go backfill. And sometimes you get this chain of backfills where all of a sudden you, you were funded for a principal architect, and instead you're off on the market hiring a, you know associate security researcher, Because you were able to fulfill five promotions, always a fun thing to do, give all these people opportunities. And then when this person comes in from outside, they're really showing up in a role where there are no expectations about what they're going to be able to do. Now you get to teach them and they get to learn and figure out what's going to be their right fit within the organization. There's
0: also a huge, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um just like motivational, like, uh, uh, I can't think of the word anyway, it, it, it just in terms of the way the employees feel internally, like I, you know, I've been at companies where like a role opened up, you know, uh, you know, somewhere above me mm-hmm. and, and, you know, immediately the thought is, oh, well, you know, maybe I could, I could do that role. Maybe they'll promote me to that role. And then you, you know, find out a month later, oh, Hey, we're you know, bringing, bringing in this person we hired from this other company. And it's like, you know, that's, uh yeah it's not degrading but it it can it can it can, it can demotivational morale it can break your morale a little bit to be like well wait a minute well why why do they have to go outside like I've been here for years I know what we're doing I, I understand the system I'm on board with the vision and they went outside.
1: Right. That's a that's a huge challenge that a lot of companies go through. And I think there's a couple different factors that play in. One is often you know the the people who are doing the hiring have no idea who you are like they're not having performance conversations with you to learn that you're even interested. The number of times I've seen people who expressed interest in a job opening and the hiring manager says why do you want it you don't you don't want to do this job and I'm sitting here going well they said they were interested you should believe them that they're really interested. The other demotivating factor is if you don't hire somebody who is truly already excellent in that gig. Right? If you had maybe 5 people who wanted that job and you know, they all had flaws. None of them were going to be perfect. It was a growth. It was a stretch opportunity. But then you bring in somebody who's just average, and now they have to grow just to learn the company. They're going to be being judged by these other five people who will say, I could have done that job better.
0: Well, and I and I, I, I actually lived it early in my career. Um, like, not, not to go into the whole thing, but, like, I, I did not have a a, a computer background per se i mean i came out of the air force i was in sales with my dad's tries yeah. uh, for a while but i'd always i've grown up with computers i knew computers and so i went and i applied for this job to do you know basically like a tech support kind of role and uh the the, the man the hiring manager like you know took a chance on me it was like all right you seem to know what you're, you're talking about so he gave me the job and there's this whole cascade of things that happened where like he put he hired me off the street, put me over two people who were already there. Mm-hmm. They both got disgruntled and left. They were both like, well, you know, I, I'm not working for this new guy. Uh, and that was like within like the first two weeks I was there. And so then I ended up going back after two weeks to to, to and and they decided not to fill those positions. They mm-hmm. were like, Tony can just do you just do it. You know, they, they, they were going to help you, but now it's all yours. And I went back to them and I was like. OK, I'm going to need uh, I'm going to need more money. And they're like, you've been here two weeks. You're asking for a raise. I said, no, 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 I'm not asking for a raise. <laughs> I'm like, you hired me to do job A <laughs> at this rate. Now you're asking me to do jobs A, B and C. So okay. what I'm saying is I need more money to do that. And I, what I was asking for was a 50 percent bump over what they had hired me at. And they were like, that's insane. We don't give 50 percent raises. And I said, well, again, I don't I don't consider it to be a raise. It's, it's a renegotiation <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and they ended up giving it to me. But then like a year later, uh, the manager who hired me was leaving. They needed to fill that role. There were executives in the company who said, well, we should just give, you know, give the role to Tony. He's already doing all those things. Just, just move him up. And there were other, other executives who were like, eh. And, and so they ended up hiring outside. So they hired, hired this woman. She came in, she's my, my manager. But I quickly, you know, figured out like she literally. did I mean, like I don't mean this to be offensive to her, but she just didn't know anything.
1: Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and that's a challenge, right? People come in from outside and they just sometimes they don't know. they you know, we we go through an interview process, and how many people come through an interview process and ace it, and then show up their first day, and you're like, wow, not the person we interviewed.
0: Right. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, and, and so in the end I ended up, I ended up leaving, you know, very shortly thereafter, because I was like, okay, well now there's bad blood. I'm like, I, that, the role should have been mine and now you've got me working for someone who can't actually even tell me what to do because they don't know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's not working for me.
1: Yeah. That's, and that seems like uh, it sounds like an interesting workforce. I suspect they might've had a lot of other challenges and issues, uh, you know, that this was just sort of a symptom of. Um, and that's that's a big thing for, for leaders to always pay attention to is when does your own bureaucracy get in your way? That you have rules that you've put in place that might make sense. Like you would say, look, we, we never give people a, a pay raise within six months of hiring. But then how do you correct when you hire somebody at the wrong level? Like we literally have had that, where we'd hired somebody in, and within six months, you're like, this person we hired into the wrong job. Like they just didn't understand, you know, what our titles meant, or they were coming out of an industry that was horribly underpaid. So they accepted, you know, a a pay that's 30% lower than what I would have paid them had they knew their value. And their their peers see it. <laughs> so their peers think they're like, well, this person is my peer. Why do they have a job title that low? Like, and I don't think people realize like you're saving. Maybe you're saving 20 grand a year on this employee, but you're spending way more than that in goodwill around your organization because if you mistreat one person in a way that's visible, everybody assumes that anything that goes wrong to them is intentional.
0: Yeah. Um, What are your thoughts on, you know, this is going to be a very broad question, but kind of the, (laughs) the, the, general state of and direction of, uh, security. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, so I've been around long enough to see ebbs and flows when I, when I started in, uh, when I was at EDS, uh, and got into security, um, I was just doing like windows, uh, network admin type stuff. Uh, I got invited to join the security team where we were doing, um, endpoints, we were doing antivirus, you know, for for like General Motors and American Airlines and, and whatever. Um, and, you know, we had McAfee, we had Symantec, we had CA, we had certain Trend Micro. And that was at a point where the focus was best of breed point solutions, like you should have yep. everything you do, you should have best of breed point solutions. And then McAfee started buying things up and said, Well, no, we should have everything come through our console. And yeah, and, and and then that went back the other direction, and now I feel like we're back in the consolidation mode.
1: Yeah, I think we we swing back and forth. And when I think about the state of security, you're right, very broad question. Um, I'm gonna sort of break my answer down. One, let's start with coverage, which is I think that we have this blind spot to how little we really know it in most organizations. Um, and I often play the game of operator. Right. So imagine the board asks the CEO and says, hey, are all of your systems patched? Let's just use patching as an example, because that's the hot topic. Do you have good vulnerability management? And the CEO says, well, of course they are. They're on a great state. Uh, now the CEO turns to the CIO and says, yeah, you know, I just told the board that we do a great job patching. Do we do a great job patching our systems? And the moment that they asked that question, they just changed the scope. Because when the board was asking the CEO, it was about the company systems. When the CEO asks asks the CIO, it's about the CIO's systems. So any systems that are not owned by the CIO are not going to be included in the answer. And that's a very important caveat that just gets excluded when the CIO says, well, of course we're doing great. And then the CIO will probably turn and talk to their director of systems administration and ask the same question, and then when the director answers, they're thinking about the software that they're responsible for. So maybe they own your Windows and Linux platforms, and they own some of the application stack, but they're not responsible for a bunch of the web applications, because that's run out of the CTO's organization, and so they don't answer for that. They're just talking about the base OS image. Uh, and maybe they're really only talking about the server-side image. And I've seen this game get played, you know, not only in my own you know, experience, but with you know talking to peer CSOs. And so there's this coverage problem that we think we know what we're responsible for, but we really don't because our partners don't, our CIOs don't. Um, you know, they don't know how many SaaS applications we're actually using.
0: Another facet of that, and you know, over the, I'd say over the last. Three years. I mean, last year was a blur because of COVID. But, um, uh, you know, there was this rise of all of a sudden one of the one of the, the emerging buzzwords was every single company talking about comprehensive visibility. Everything was yep. we're, we're going to give you full visibility of your entire attack surface, your entire you know landscape, et cetera. And which is great on the one hand that 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 makes sense like you know like everything you just described it's like well i don't want to just know about this or just know about this i need to know the whole picture the whole environment what do we have what's running where's our data where's our servers where's our applications the problem with comprehensive visibility is there is always going to be this element of you don't know what you don't know no matter how comprehensive you think you are you don't know what exists outside of your window of comprehensiveness.
1: Right, and unless you have tools that are designed to build, give you comprehensive visibility upfront, then you're never gonna get there. Like if you started with a platform that says, okay, integrate technology by technology, then it's much harder to ever get to comprehensive than if you had something that really did start outside in and look at everything. Like consider, just take like Bit Discovery as an example. It's a company that's focused on, let's give you a comprehensive view of every internet touch point you have. Like we don't, can't necessarily tell you what to do next, but at the very least you started with everything. Or Exonia, so doing similar thing for asset management. Let's get you to comprehensive coverage. Um, or Orca doing that in the cloud, you know, which Yes, you're limited. We'll tell you what's in the cloud. But a lot of times, that's the blind spot that companies have. So I think there's a piece of it that is about, you know, how do we get to comprehensive? But there's a different piece. And this is the harder problem that I think people aren't really ready to face up for, which is uh, the CISO isn't really a C-level executive. Uh You know, if you look around most companies and you took all of the standard C-level executives, right, the CIO, the CRO, the CHRO or CPO, depending on what they're called, the CFO, they all work for the CEO. That's the default model. In general, if you are a CXO, you work for the CEO. That really is the definition of a C-level executive. You're in the room where it happens. Now, look across the CSO and CISO industry almost none of them work for the CEO. They're always one step down in the organization. Right, a lot of them are working for the CFO. Right, you work for CFO, you work for the risk officer, you work for the CIO, you work for a CTO, wherever it is, you're always one level down in the organization. Now, why does that matter? Uh, Because for a long time, I didn't think that truly mattered. You, You work through influence, but it matters because it's about how you then have a relationship with the rest of executive management and with the board. Um, especially as boards become more active and want to learn more about what's going on in an organization, right? the board wants to provide oversight to understand if management is making the right decisions. And the CSO isn't really part of management, right? The CEO I, is management.
0: I can't cite the the names of the companies, but I've anecdotally heard of a, a couple different s- situations, you know, kind of r- more recently, where they've set the the set the structure up where the CSO is simultaneously reporting to the CEO and and the board like that basically there's a direct path to the board because the board doesn't want it filtered through two other levels of C-level executives before it gets to them. They were like,
1: we just want you to tell us what is going on. So lots of places have that where the CSO talks to the board. I did. I met with the board every quarter. I had three board directors that I met with in between my quarterly meetings. But at the same time, I I don't work for them. Right? I work through my management chain. They're the ones who are going to hire and fire me. They're the ones who are going to you know, take a look at what I'm going to tell the board and make sure that it meets with what they want the board to hear. And that's going to be for anybody who's right. in the CSO position. You don't get to independently decide what to tell the board. Only the CEO gets to do that. And the boards don't yet understand, I think, uh, how to make sure that the CEO is on board with that conversation that you want to have happen. Because the conversation needs to be, where are we willing to accept risk? Because I don't think boards are yet willing to ask that question. The question shouldn't be, what are the th- risks that we're accepting that we shouldn't, which is the implied nature of the conversation. It really needs to be where are the risks that we're accepting, and it's the right choice for the business today.
0: Well, and you know, historically and 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 still to some extent. You know, the CISO is seen as, you know, sort of the scapegoat. You know, you're the person you're, you're the person to yep. fire when when it goes wrong. Um, but then, like, you know, like when you look at like the government level attempts at cybersecurity and how, you know, you hire cyber are you put someone in place, but you don't really give them the either the authority or the budget to do the job right. Mm hmm. And 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 I think that happens in a lot of companies too. It's like, well, I'm giving you this, I'm giving you this the responsibility of protecting us, and you're the guy I'm gonna fire when it goes wrong, but I'm not really giving you the authority or the budget to do the job right.
1: Right. And that's a that's a model that's broken because you're trying to sort of tie operations and governance and advice all into one person. And you really want the the CSO to have a role that is about advice and governance to the company, which says here are the risks that we're currently taking. Here's the harms that we face from those risks. But then they're not the one who makes the choice as to whether that's acceptable. That's the job of the rest of management to decide. And then the CSO might have to go execute on risk mitigation. But look, we always take risk. We're in the business of taking risk. That's why we make profit because we took better risks than other people did, and we executed better. And security is just another one of those risks. Well,
0: and I think that there, there, there has been an evolution uh, a, a kind of meeting in the middle, so to speak, where I think the C-suite and the board – are more and more aware over time of the importance of security just in, in of itself and the importance of security for the business, for the brand reputation, for you know, all the reasons. At the same time, we as security people and CSOs and, and, and CISOs, I think have. Learned to kind of come to the middle and say, "Okay, I need to speak in business terms. I need to understand what are the business goals, yep. and not just security for the sake of security." And 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 even when I, when I was at EDS, um, you know, at one point as a security architect, one of my jobs was. Um, developers would, you know, create these applications. And one of the last steps was to do the security check. Before right. we- last step, of course. Right. right. This, is, this is pre-Agile, pre-DevOps, uh, you know, d- dating myself. But yes, it was like they've already done all the work. And now it's my job to say, oh, yeah, you can't release this.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but- right. Where you're doomed. Like you say, you can't release it and they're going to do it anyway. And then everybody sees that you have no power or you say you can release it. And then if it goes wrong, it's your fault because you approved it. But-
0: And ultimately what, what I was directed by my manager to do is is to say, look, your job isn't to, you know, unless unless it is like catastrophically bad. your, Mm -hmm. your, your job is not to be the roadblock. Your job is not to police what they release. Your job is to go back to them and say, look, I'm identifying the risks. So just know that when you release this, you're accepting these risks. Yep. And you can't claim that you didn't know about them because I'm telling you right now (laughs) But just know that this is what's wrong with your application.
1: Yeah, the the effort we always tried to do, and we didn't always succeed at it, was just ensure that they had them written down in their launch paperwork. So that when they went for approval to their management, their management would have to see the same risks. Now, they would always try to color and shade those risks sound not quite as bad. But our answer was, look, if you write down the risks, then from our perspective, you have a green light because your executive has to read them and approve them and if they're comfortable with that risk to the business then that's okay well
0: and we've um we i i've 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 talked about this uh, with a couple people recently about when it comes to patch management like so from a from a technology journalist perspective um and, and you know we look at like Poneman reports and, 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 you know, uh, Verizon data breach reports and, and you see the numbers and I always used to look at it and go, well, okay. So, you know, 80% are patched against this or 85% of, I'm like, what, what's wrong with this other 20%? This patch has been available for five years. Um, and I always looked at it like that was a, there was a problem with the patch management process of Mm -hmm. something's broken. Why didn't you apply this patch? Only recently did someone point out like, well, no, once you get to a certain point where it's like there's no, there's no more growth, it's not a matter of time, it's not a matter. there are just the systems that can't be patched, like whether it's, you know, they're still running on Windows XP and there's the, the patches not available or uh, it's a critical system that they can't afford to take offline. and And those are situations where they've, you know, hopefully made a calculated risk and said, yes, we understand that, you know. This this vulnerability exists. We are aware of it. However, we're going to accept that risk because the challenge of applying the patch is worse.
1: Right. And unfortunately, it's often not really a calculated risk. It's a sort of we choose that path without ever having that very clear conversation. Right. People drag their heels. They say, well, you know, it's been it hasn't been patched for two years. Why do we have to prioritize it now? That's a I think a conversation everybody's heard. But no, I think you're you're absolutely right is patch management isn't as trivial as people like to think it is because these are general purpose computing systems. You want to patch a Windows application or a Windows OS, you have to write every application on that machine, every role it's integrating with. Uh, maybe that machine is managing life safety equipment. And if it breaks, now we can't manage the life safety equipment and that's a problem. And yeah, no, it's a, it's not just the patch management. It's device ownership, the end-to-end how you're handling that.
0: And as sort of cold as it seems, um, you know, I think for a lot of businesses, there, there, it comes down to, you know, the, there was that the 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 famous case of uh, General Motors and, and, and the memo of saying, listen, we know, you know, I mean, actually, it's probably all the manufacturers, but the one I'm thinking of was General Motors. Of yes, we know that this thing exists and that people might die what is the projected cost of the litigation
1: versus the cost of the recall right and 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 look perfect life safety isn't achievable imagine let's imagine that i could build a self-driving car today right and i could postulate that if i put the self-driving car out and everybody in america switched to my self-driving car tomorrow that Mm -hmm. The number of people who would die in vehicle accidents, that would all be the fault of my software, would be 3,000 people a year. Should I release the self-driving car? My lawyers would be like, absolutely not. Like, 3,000 people a year are going to die, and you could all point it at my car, and therefore the lawsuits would kill the company. But we kill like 30,000 a year right now in automotive accidents.
0: Yeah, we're, we're talking about a 90%
1: improvement. 90% improvement, but there's one piece of software that is now responsible for every fatality, and we would never survive that. Right? That's sort of flipping around you know, the, the GM conversation. But realistically, like that is a weird externality that as long as we can't blame one person, we'd be willing to accept 10 times higher fatality rates. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's, it's funny, too, because, uh, you know, I, I've seen that, you know, to kind of shift it to that, uh, the self-driving car thing. I've seen that conversation in years past, but it was only like this week or last week that, you know, there was the statement from Elon Musk acknowledging that, too, of saying, look, like, in theory, self-driving cars would be awesome. It would It would reduce fatalities. It would reduce traffic congestion. It would reduce all of these things. It would be great. However, the hybrid model of having a self-driving car on the road with humans doesn't work. Correct. Because humans suck <laughs> and they're unpredictable.
1: And actually, actually, I think that he's wrong. I think humans are highly predictable. Imagine self-driving cars. I don't know what, actually, we didn't ask where you live. I live in Boston. And when I think about driving around Cambridge, which has cars and bicyclists and pedestrians, imagine a self-driving car that uh, could not run over a pedestrian or a bicyclist. That seems like a great model to have. The streets of Cambridge would be useless to cars as soon as you put those self-driving cars on it, because people would be like, oh, look, I can just walk out in front of this and it will stop. You know, I can cut it off with my bicycle and it will stop. And people would maliciously do that because we have a chunk of people who want rid of automotives. So they'll stop the cars from being useful. And i I expect that to happen. I don't think that's an unpredictable thing. I think it's highly predictable.
0: Yeah, that's probably true. But uh, yeah, it's just you know the, the 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 case can certainly be made though that in terms of the actual flow of traffic, if all the cars were 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 you know using the same sort of algorithmic model and they all communicate with each other, so they knew what they were going to do next. Yep um you know that it would be much smoother you would have you know less traffic jams and and you know all, all those things would be great but uh, but yeah i mean the, the yeah,
1: couldn't could not allow anything else to interact with that system to make it work
0: so that's that's a challenge um so i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to shift gears a little okay. bit. i, w- I want to ask you but so at, at one point i was in the i was in the market i was actually in the market for my son uh, it was, he he wanted for his birthday a a gaming chair, and I was like, well, I don't know anything about gaming chairs, and and so I put the question out there, and and you you recommended yours. Now I will go up, up front and say I ended up not going with that one. We went with something cheaper, uh, and 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 I think he's he he's actually okay with his. Uh, I think he likes his. Eventually, I ended up buying one for myself, and I did not get the exact same one as his, but it was very similar. And as I looked at them, I was like, well, these all seem to be the same chair like from different manufacturers like i think they really are shape uh it's got the same footrest it's the same thing um but having used it now now i'm like okay maybe i needed to actually buy the one that andy told me to buy because um i am not that impressed with i'm not in it right now it's at a, it's at my other other desk but I'm not that impressed with mine. I I, I kind of want a uh, more of an executive office chair. I think would be more more comfortable because like my my particular game chair, like you, I see you're rocking. Yeah. My gaming chair does not rock. It's just oh. not. Now I can lay it all the way back. You know I can put out the footrest. Yep. I mean it's got options like that, but it's the rocking where I'm like, no, that's a that's a critical factor. I needed the rocking.
1: Yeah. No, I definitely need the rocking. Mine it, sense, I just don't lock it. And it lets me rock there. The one that I have, I don't even remember who makes it. It's uh, But it has the Boston Uprising logo. I'm a, a Boston Uprising fan, um, to, which matches with my Patriots fandom really well. Because I have one team that has dominated and one team that has done the exact opposite of that. Um, although the rest of the household, we all use the, I think, I don't remember what the brand name is. We get them from Costco. Um, Costco has some great gaming chairs, pretty inexpensive, that, that are pretty good. My kids love them.
0: Um, so speaking of your Boston fandom, like I like, I know every year I can, I can count on you to, to, to post uh Patriot stuff, especially when they were flying high, yep. but there was always this question of, okay, well, who, who is the dynasty is the dynasty Belichick or is the dynasty Brady? And I feel like that we've asked and answer that question now. No, <laughs> I don't
1: think, I don't think you have, cause you, know, it, you, you can't look at, you can't the, look at one year. What is the future of the
0: Patriots under Belichick without a Brady?
1: So maybe maybe we'll see it. Look, I think we've, uh, as a Patriots fan, I credit three people more than anything else, right? You named two of them, Brady and Belichick, but you left out the most important one, which is Robert Kraft. In 1994, I think, when the, Patri- when the Kraft family brought, bought the Patriots, was right after the salary cap had been put in place. And Jonathan Kraft was at the Sloan Sports Conference, and they asked him, they're like, Why would you buy a sports team like with a salary cap? Like you can't have like these superstar studded teams like the 49ers had right then or the Cowboys a decade earlier. And Kraft said something at that point. It's been the family philosophy, which is if you're in a salary cap and you buy three amazing players, you don't actually get to field a good team because you can't afford anybody competitive. You can get players who are ninety-five percent as good for half the price. That the fall off in a winner's takes most. It's a uh, pay a model, money ball thing. Right. It basically was they were playing money ball in the '90s, and they've been doing that ever since. Um, what we saw last year was was a combination of a couple of things. One is, look, the Patriots had basically mortgaged everything from a salary cap perspective. You know, because you get to shift money around in years to have this fantastic run from 2014 to 2018, which I don't know how many people really yet remember that uh, there were a couple Super Bowl wins in there and a lot of Super Bowl appearances. Um but they're out from under salary cap hell. They just spent more money in free agency than any other team has ever done and got a quarterback in the first round. So let's see what next year looks like.
0: It's funny so like you know when I when I moved to Houston, I'm in Houston. So yep. when I'm in Houston um the Astros were horrible. You know, yep. it was like, and and so there was one year, um, like I want to say it was like 2015 ish, where they were like dead last place. Their payroll was so low. They, they I think they set a record, or, you know, and 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 basically the entire team's payroll. There were there were like something like ten different New York Yankees who
1: individually made more than the entire Astros team which would not surprise me at all. Let's talk about banging on a trash can there.
0: But but in that year the Astros set a record as a as the most profitable franchise and it, right. it underscored that ultimately it is a business. Like yes, we'd love to see the franchise win and it, it makes us excited as fans to go to the games and see them win, but ultimately it is a business and if you as long as you can still get butts in the seats without paying the payroll, right? There's, almost no vested interest in in paying the money to win.
1: Yeah. Now the NFL doesn't have that because they have a salary cap that includes a floor. So you basically have to spend the same money everybody else does. Well, you can that, just do financial shenanigans to move it around.
0: I've made the argument for years now that um I feel like I feel like in any franchise football, baseball, basketball, like any any professional sports franchise that there should be a clause in the contract if there isn't That basically says that you you have an obligation to be competitive. It's better for the league if you're competitive. Mm -hmm. And if you can't be competitive, you surrender your franchise. The Detroit Lions have sucked since 1950. (laughs) 1960, we'll say pretty much in the 50s. They actually won before the Super Bowl was was a thing.
1: Yeah, no, they used to be a dominant franchise in the pre -AFL, AFL era.
0: Right. um, But. They've like just literally perpetually sucked, which is inexcusable when you've had Barry Sanders and you've had Herman Moore and you've had Calvin Johnson. It's like the fact that you couldn't build a winning team or and at least get past the wild card round in the playoffs. I mean, I'm not saying you have to win the Super Bowl, but at least let us believe it's possible. Yep. <laughs> and and every year as a Lions fan by week three, you're like, well, maybe next year.
1: Hmm. <laughs> Well, I think the problem is that the the simplest way that I can put it is there are moves that you get to make as a general manager that are about increasing the probability of winning. And when you look at the way the salary cap is structured, like you can borrow money from the future. And so imagine you can sign somebody to a contract that increases your odds of winning this year by 1%, which is massive. Just to be clear in the NFL, like a 1% improvement would be great but the consequence of it is lowering your odds of winning for the next five years by half a percent, right? Yeah. And you you don't want to make those moves. And the incentives, unfortunately, for GMs and head coaches in this win now mentality is to make a lot of those choices. So like, oh look, we just added like 7% to our odds to win this year. Unfortunately, we were carrying this like 15% debuff from all the bad choices the previous guy has made, and now we've added another ten percent debuffs for the next five years.
0: Yeah. Well, like my my uh my brother is here in Houston, uh, at least for now, uh, as well. He's actually going to Chicago. But uh mm-hmm. we were just talking the other day about how you know now that the, there there's so many parallels. The Texans are actually a lot like the Lions uh <sighs> and, and now.
1: <laughs> I, I feel sorry for the Texans the fans. Go.
0: Deshaun Watson, uh, you know. I mean, his legal his his legal troubles now aside, uh, you know, he, he's trying to get out of here, J- you know, that J.J. Watt's gone. I'm like, well, w- what are you guys even doing? Like, is it, who who's left on the on the Texans?
1: Yeah. Anybody, anybody who's a Texans fan, if they're not following Steph Stradley uh, and are reading her blogs, she is one of the best and most informative people in Houston for paying attention to what's going on in Texas and. Yeah, I got to say that uh, I think even her optimism is is mostly gone at this point. She sounds more like a Lions fan some days.
0: Well, and like my brother and I were conspiracy theoring, theorizing uh, about uh, Deshaun Watson's legal woes because we're like, it's funny how that, that only popped up after he said he wanted to leave, and and like you know, like I, I feel like there's a good chance that people knew what was going on and we're okay keeping it quiet, but suddenly now it's public because he's trying to leave.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it sits in that category where, you know, I, I wanna wait and let, the, let this play out in the courts because if these are legitimate charges, legitimate complaints, I think there's a lot of, of problems going on here. But no, the timing does lend oneself to ask that question, which I hate that we even think about asking that question, but at the same time you do. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. Well, I wanted to uh, kind of start winding down. And, and and so this is not a great question to wind down with. But you and I talked a little bit about uh, uh, DC versus Marvel. You said you have a, a huge comic collection. Um, I never did. However, I have an uncle who had a huge comic book collection. And he had like just garbage bags, like in a closet of, you know. And uh, so like, th- this wasn't the greatest way to take care of your comic book collection per se. But I would go over there and I would read through them. And, I, you know, so it's like I remember... You Know, uh, you know, I, I so even reading the comic books, I leaned towards Marvel, I preferred yep. to read uh Avengers, I preferred to read Thor, I preferred to read you know, and you know, I, I read some DC stuff, but I always liked Marvel better. And when it comes to the TV and movie universes, actually, DC did okay with the TV stuff for a while with the Arrowverse, I liked Arrow mm-hmm. and I liked you know, flash and stuff. And I feel like they've really derailed the hell out of that now too. <laughs> um, really, they've really messed that one up. Uh, and I don't know what they're doing with their movie franchise, but, uh, I, I feel like just Marvel, Marvel seems to be firing on all cylinders and DC can't get attacked together.
1: That's, yeah, you know, I think that's fair. If you go back and look from a character perspective, and I've been saying this, you know, since I've, I've been a collector since the '80s, and mine are all individually bagged and they're stored in, you know, the the plasticish cardboard boxes. Um, Marvel always had people. It was people who had powers. Um, you know, occasionally you have people who had really insane levels of power, but. It was still human beings, basically, at the the heart. And so like all good science fiction and fantasy, it was about exploring human interaction in a different world. And so you can look at the uh, mutants. I was a big X-Men fan. And the troubles that they faced in the 80s were parallels for what the lesbian and gay community faced at the time, that you could read you know, any comic book and just replace mutant with gay. And it was almost like people were just, it was just storytelling about the news, right? Oh, people hated gays. People hated mutants. Very similar and not very well hidden. Like it was, I think, intentional. If you look at the DC universe, these characters were never humans. They were gods. They were gods who walked among us. But Superman was the god of power. Like the only interesting stories he ever got involved in, in created these MacGuffins that were like, oh, this is the way to like make Superman weak or to finally kill Superman, but he didn't really strain beyond that. He was designed originally to be this vision we could look up at to say we could aspire to be something better. But it's really hard to tell a story about a messiah,
0: right? Well, essentially, the, the 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 parallel you draw between um, you know X Men, the mutants, and 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 the lesbian and gay challenges. Um, it, you know, we also t- talked a little bit about Star Trek versus Star Wars. And one of the mm-hmm. things I, I always loved about Star Trek is the whole thing was a proxy for the cold war. Like the stories were always you know, like the Federation is the United States. The Klingons are the Soviet union and the, and, and all the stories can kind of be boiled down to,
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they, those characters were you know, in a very highly sort of idealized and dystopic world. Um, you know, I always wondered, my, my complaint with Star Trek is if you have this technology that creates a post-scarcity environment, right, that you can have replicators produce anything you want, why do you have the prime directive? Like you are literally increasing suffering. And the only explanation I've ever had somebody gave me is they said, well, it turns out the only scarcity is dilithium. And uh, once you have those crystals powering your your ships like within the ship you have post scarcity but to do that you basically have to impoverish the rest of the world um cuz if you look at earth earth isn't necessarily doing so hot neither is anything else because basically it is the cold war everybody's putting all of their money only into their militaries
0: all right well and and you know I, and I thought it was interesting you know is a little before my time you know the, the original star trek i wasn't like i wasn't alive and watching episodes right. as they aired originally um but um you know they got away with stuff they they they, they could tell stories that nobody else had the balls to tell right um directly um or even even you know coming down to the 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 first interracial kiss you could get away with that because it wasn't it wasn't a black woman it was it was she's an
1: alien or whatever you know right (laughs) no absolutely so no i think that that one we could go for hours talking about it but uh and i think and i love the power of narrative like we can tell these stories so that we can have conversations we wouldn't have otherwise and then learn parallels that we might apply into our daily lives
0: yeah well going back to marvel dc real quick it's funny to me reading some of this the the back and forth uh, legally speaking and just in just seeing the the parallels like they've literally gone out of their way to invent mirror image characters like across the board i mean oh so,
1: absolutely
0: well, there's the whole Shazam thing where like Marvel created or, you know someone else created it. And then D.C. was like, well, you just copied Superman. And, you know, so they won the legal battle. They got it back. Now they've got them both. I'm like, well, what do you do when you have Shazam and Superman? Um, and, you know, but there's there are parallels across the board for almost every single character. Um, and but what, to, to your God's thing, it's like, yeah, when I look at Superman in particular, I'm like, you know, I mean, I, I, I like Superman the movie. I like going to watch, you know, I like yep. to see the movies. But ultimately, he's too overpowered, and 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 mm-hmm. so is Captain Marvel. Frankly, uh, you know, it's like the, the you know, when you look at the the amount of power there is, it's like okay, well, who who could possibly beat that? Um, I, I I found the whole premise of Batman versus Superman to be ludicrous. I'm like, that's not a fight.
1: Yeah, well, it's but it was stolen out of the Dark Knight comic books. I know, like but the, man, he's he's just a he's just a trust fund billionaire with some toys. Like he's he, the, he's, he's the god of money. That's what you have to recognize, right? All the DC characters are gods. He happens to be the god of money.
0: All right. Well, I will. Uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, I will. I, I really want to thank you. I think it was a fun conversation. I, I um. I, I want to thank you for taking the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I will uh, look forward to seeing what you do next, and keep my eyes open for this uh, for this book, so I can learn how to be a better leader.
1: Awesome. Thanks, and it should be out in 2022, probably given publishing timelines. Awesome. All right, take care. Thank you.
0: I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, Please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. Let me know if you love it. Let me know if it sucks and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.